You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. fifth episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. So we want to start off the show by saying thank you to uh, a few people. First, thank you to Tom M., who just this past week was the 100th person to like the podcast on Facebook. Rich and I thought that was exciting. And we enjoy hearing from everyone who uses Facebook to send us a message or to comment on the different posts we put up there. And just to let all of you in on a secret, neither Tracy nor I had ever been on Facebook before we decided to start a history podcast. Uh, I guess up until then, we were a bit behind the social media trend. But we're making up for it now. So as we mentioned from time to time, if you go to the podcast website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed. And our second thank you goes out to Bob and Mark for their generous donations to the podcast this past week. Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, the podcast will always be free, of course, but we decided to put up a, a donate button on the website in case anyone wanted to help us out with stuff like the monthly cost of the server where we keep all the episodes so you can uh, download them and also with what we call our book fund since we're always on the lookout for books and different resources that will help us out with our research for the show. Uh, but anyway. And then our third thank you is a big one. It's for everyone who left us all those great five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes this past week. Y'all surpassed the goal we set, so as promised, tomorrow we'll be releasing the special bonus episode. Yeah, it was kind of funny, um, but we didn't check the U.S. or U.K. iTunes sites for a day or two because we were kind of afraid no one would take us up on the deal we offered you guys. And then when we did check, we were surprised, in a good way, at your response. Uh, you guys actually passed the goal we'd set by Wednesday, uh, by then, we had the 50 uh, new five-star ratings and reviews, and so everything since then has been icing on the cake. But we appreciate everyone who took the time to do that on iTunes, and please know how deeply touched we were at the many wonderfully gracious comments y'all wrote about the show. That encouragement means a lot to us. Well, all right. Um, we wanted to be sure and take care of those thank yous at the beginning of the show, but now let's get down to business. By the time Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated as the 16th President of the United States on March 4, 1861, Jefferson Davis had already served as President of the Confederate States of America for two weeks. 
Davis was sworn in on February 18th after the delegates to the Montgomery Convention unanimously elected him on February 9th, the day after they adopted a provisional constitution. You'll recall that after Abraham Lincoln's election, seven southern states withdrew from the Union during the secession winter of 1860-1861. The first to leave was South Carolina on December 20th, 1860. Jefferson Davis's home state of Mississippi followed on January 9th, 1861, then Florida on January 10th, Alabama on January 11th, Georgia on January 19th, and Louisiana on January 26th. Texas was held up a bit by the efforts of Governor Sam Houston to obstruct his state's secessionists, but the Lone Star State did end up withdrawing from the Union on February 1st. Because there were seven states in this first wave of secession, the newspapers sometimes called them the Seven Sisters, a reference from Greek mythology to the daughters of the Titan Atlas and the sea nymph Pliony. The daughters were changed into the stars of the constellation Pleiades, even as the seven breakaway states transformed themselves into the stars of a new flag. The Confederate States of America was born in Alabama in February 1861 at the Montgomery Convention. Delegates chosen at the secession conventions of the first six states to withdraw from the Union met at Montgomery on February 4th. As Rich mentioned just a minute ago, Texas was lagging behind a bit, so her delegates wouldn't arrive at the convention until February 15th. Even then, the Texans couldn't take their seats, nor could their state be admitted to the Confederacy until a February 21st referendum in Texas made the state's secession official. As we mentioned back in episode 23, only in Texas did the legislature require that the state's secession convention submit its ordinance to the voters for ratification. Some people are surprised to find out that the Confederate States of America was already an ongoing concern by the time Abraham Lincoln took office, but there's a reason the newly independent southern states moved quickly to unite together. As Russell Wigley explains in his book, A Great Civil War, quote, Upon seceding, the southern states found themselves in a perilous situation. They professed to be independent republics, but they did not possess the complete appurtenances of sovereignty. In particular, while they had their militia systems, they did not separately have the ability to protect themselves from the potential military power of the Union. They must form a new Union of Southern states and quickly to shield themselves against the Northern threat, but also because secession sprang at least as much from the idea of a Southern civilization to be upheld by Southern nationhood as from states' rights. End quote. With that sense of urgency in mind, on the day that South Carolina withdrew from the Union, a resolution was introduced into that secession convention calling upon the southern states to send delegates to a meeting for the purpose of discussing the challenges connected with the formation of a new southern confederation. And so, as secession fever then built up momentum and swept across the south, each state seconded South Carolina's call for a meeting to be held in Montgomery, Alabama. The delegates that the seceding states sent to Montgomery ranged from radical fire-eaters like South Carolina's Robert Barnwell Rett to moderates like George's Alexander Stevens, who had voted against secession at his state's convention. 
But whatever their political temperament, all the delegates at the Montgomery Convention recognized they were involved in an unprecedented undertaking. Since the Revolution, the United States had remained united, but now the country was breaking apart, and these men were meeting to consider the difficulties associated with the formation of a new republic. Those men who met in the Senate chamber of the Alabama State House would engage in a remarkable series of activities from February to May, 1861. In Battle Cry of Freedom, James McPherson points out that, quote, the Confederate Convention appeared to be a triumph of efficiency. In six days, the delegates in Montgomery drafted a temporary constitution, turned themselves into a provisional Congress for the new government, elected a provisional president and vice president, and then spent a leisurely month fashioning a permanent constitution and setting the machinery of government in motion. End quote. These activities are all the more remarkable since there's a serious question as to whether the delegates had actually been given the authority by their states to form a new southern government, or whether these men simply took that power upon themselves. In his book, Look Away, A History of the Confederate States of America, William C. Davis is certain that none of the state delegations went to Montgomery with the power to agree to the formation and establishment of a new government. Davis asserts that the delegates were there merely to consult and then to return to their home states with recommendations concerning the formation and establishment of a new government. Davis declares that the Montgomery Convention took the radical step of seizing power but he also contends that the delegates were justified in doing so. And in his explanation, he refers to the facts that the seceding states had already seized federal property and installations, but the army garrisons at Two Forts, Sumter in South Carolina, and Pickens in Florida had refused demands that those places be surrendered. Davis says, quote, The critical moment was upon them. No one could know what Buchanan, or more likely Lincoln, would do about the garrisons in Forts Sumter and Pickens. Equally to the point, who knew how long the hotheads in Charleston could be restrained from acting on their own and precipitating genuine war? In such a moment, delay might be fatal. If they simply came here, made a show of a convention, talked, and then went home to recommend actions that could take weeks or even months to effect, they risked losing control of events. The crisis before them justified taking radical steps. End quote. It may seem remarkable to us that these delegates would take such extraordinary power upon themselves, but remember that by and large they were men representing the elite of Southern society, influential men who took it as their due that their society's political and economic power rightly rested in their hands. And so in Montgomery, they resolved to take what steps they deemed necessary to maintain control of events. Nevertheless, especially for those who even today still insist that the South seceded in order to protect states' rights, there's a high degree of irony in the fact that the men at the Montgomery Convention essentially decided not to leave the matter in the hands of their home states, but instead decided to usurp power themselves and create a new central government, albeit one more to their liking. But of course the issue was never the protection of states' rights, but rather the protection of slavery. 
And proof of this can be found in the fact that while the new constitution of the Confederate States was conspicuously silent on the right of secession, it did, unlike the U.S. Constitution, mention slaves and slavery by name. For example, it said there was to be no Confederate States law, quote, denying or impairing the right of property in Negro slaves, end quote. And then on March 21st, Alexander Stevens, by then vice president of the CSA, gave a speech in Savannah, Georgia, in which he said of the new Confederate States government that, quote, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and moral condition, end quote. Now, considering the backpedaling and revisionism that took place later on, after the Confederate defeat, it's important to note that in March 1861, Alexander Stevens didn't name states' rights as the cornerstone of the Confederacy, but instead he plainly and honestly stated that the foundations of the South's new government rested upon racism and slavery. So, that's obviously a significant point to note, but in making that point, we're getting just a bit ahead of ourselves in the story, so let's go back to what was happening in Montgomery in February. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Besides the pressing urgency of the national security issue, if we may call it that, which gave rise to the need to create a collective defense against any aggressive move by the United States government, the Montgomery delegates also were in a hurry to establish the basic machinery of government so that the slave states still sitting on the fence, such as Virginia, would have a viable alternative to remaining in the Union. And so the delegates moved quickly, really quickly, to prepare a provisional constitution so that some form of united government might begin functioning as soon as possible. The committee in charge of this work reported, and the convention unanimously accepted its handiwork on February 8th, just four days after the start of the Montgomery Convention. 
Under the Provisional Constitution, the Convention conveniently became the Provisional Congress of the Confederate States of America, acting in that capacity while a committee crafted a permanent constitution. In the Provisional Congress, each state would have one vote, while usually being represented by as many delegates as it had had in the U.S. Congress. The Provisional Constitution was to endure for one year after the inauguration of a Provisional President, or until a permanent constitution could be put into effect. As it was, though, the permanent constitution, after much debate, was unanimously accepted on March 11, 1861, and all the Confederate states had ratified it by the end of June. The permanent Confederate constitution, like the provisional one, borrowed heavily from the U.S. Constitution. One of the main reasons for this similarity is that most of the men in Montgomery wanted to project the message that Southerners had seceded in order to preserve constitutional government, not destroy it. The leaders of the new Confederate government wanted to be seen not as rebels, but as reformers. In their eyes, the seceding states were really innocent victims of Northern treachery, and now the Southern states were simply exercising the sovereign rights they had possessed all along. In finally taking a stand against Northern aggression, these Southern leaders believed they were the ones honoring the cherished legacy that had been passed along to the country by America's founding fathers, that of a democratic republic with guaranteed constitutional rights. And to Southern slave owners, this included the right to take enslaved black people wherever they wished, especially into new territories. Well, the Confederate Constitution, while it borrowed heavily from the U.S. Constitution, even using the same format and identical language in most sections, it did contain some significant differences. It streamlined some governmental procedures, including impeachment and amendment of the Constitution. And as we mentioned a moment ago, slavery was expressly protected, although the importation of slaves from overseas was forbidden. While this decision didn't please some of the fire eaters, most of the southern leaders realized that opening up the African slave trade again would instantly torpedo any hopes they had of formal foreign recognition of their new government. Another difference between the two constitutions was that the confederacies enhanced presidential powers. While the confederate president was only to serve one six-year term, he was given the power of a line-item veto. But ultimately, the permanent Confederate Constitution was so similar to the U.S. Constitution that it undercut the states' rights theory advocated by so many Southern leaders. The Confederate Constitution retained a supremacy clause and other aspects of a strong central government. And so, ironically, during the Civil War, as the independent-minded Southern states strove to assert their rights, their quarrels with the Confederate government surpassed most of the disagreements that had plagued relations between the U.S. government and the southern states before secession. In Montgomery, once the Provisional Constitution was in place, the new Provisional Congress immediately turned to the vital matter of choosing a president for the Confederate States of America. In A Great Civil War, widely states, quote, Fire eaters such as William Lowndes Yancey of Alabama and Robert Barnwell Rhett of South Carolina were never seriously in the running for the presidency. 
Their character as outsiders in relation to the establishment, combined with doubts about their stability and capacity for constructive action, to exclude them from the highest offices. Among the more moderate statesmen, the populous, centrally located, and therefore strategically important state of Georgia had two major contenders for the Confederate presidency, Howell Cobb and former U.S. Senator Robert A. Toombs. But Cobb lacked the personal magnetism desirable in a president who might have to be a rallying point, while Toombs was so overbearing a personality that he repelled as much and as strongly as he attracted. Furthermore, the two Georgia candidates divided their own state's delegation and thus tended to cancel each other out. The choice for provisional president, therefore, came around to ex-Senator Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. End quote. These deliberations among the delegates were held in private behind closed doors, so it's impossible for historians to fully understand how Jefferson Davis was ultimately selected. But certainly, his experience in the U.S. House and Senate, his West Point education, and his Mexican War service, and his tenure as President Pierce's Secretary of War all contributed to his appeal. In addition, Davis was favored by the observers that Virginia had dispatched to Alabama. While the representatives from Virginia had no official standing at the Montgomery Convention, their opinion nevertheless carried significant weight, since the new Confederacy was hopeful for that key slave state's eventual secession. Georgia received the consolation prize of the vice presidency, which went to the persistently sickly but deeply ambitious Alexander Stevens. That Stevens would be appointed to high office in the Confederate government was a bit ironic, since, as we mentioned earlier in the show, he had opposed his state's secession from the Union virtually until the moment it was an accomplished fact. Stevens was also a former Whig, while Jefferson Davis was a Democrat, so from the very beginning, old partisan differences, conflicting ambitions, and Stevens' doubts about the wisdom of secession made for the possibility that the Confederacy's executive officers might make an ill-matched team. On February 9th, just a day after they unanimously approved the Confederacy's provisional constitution, and just five days after the convention began, the Provisional Congress unanimously elected Davis and Stevens to be the new nation's provisional president and vice president. It actually wasn't until the Confederacy's first popular election was held on November 6, 1861, that members of the first regular Confederate Congress were chosen, and Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens were confirmed by the voters as the Confederacy's president and vice president. The Provisional Confederate Congress continued to meet in Montgomery until May 1861, when it voted to relocate the new nation's capital, capital to Richmond, Virginia. But other important work completed in Alabama included providing for the raising of an army, issuing bonds to finance the government, enacting all U.S. laws that were consistent with the new Confederate Constitution, and establishing critical national departments. Those departments mirrored the organization of the United States government, with a few exceptions. Like the U.S. government, the Confederacy had a State Department, Treasury Department, War Department, and Post Office. In fact, post offices in the South were simply switched to Confederate control. Unlike the Union, however, the Confederacy added a Justice Department, but declined to create an Interior Department. 
And then the Confederate Constitution provided for the creation of a Supreme Court, but that provision was never fulfilled. So really within the span of just a few days in early February 1861, the Montgomery delegates established the basic framework of a government. Perhaps most importantly, they had purposefully chosen well-known moderates to lead the new nation, hoping that such a move would attract broader support for the Confederacy in the fence-sitting states of the upper and border south. And so, in very short order, a southern slave republic was thus born. In the first volume of Shelby Foote's trilogy of books on the Civil War, he talks about Jefferson Davis resigning his seat in the U.S. Senate and then traveling back home to Mississippi. Now, Foote, who was no historian, but who certainly had the novelist's dramatic flair, writes that when Davis arrived in Jackson, quote, Governor J.J. Pettus met him with a commission as Major General of Volunteers. It was the job Davis wanted. Awaiting the raising of his army, he went to Briarfield. In Alabama, now in early February, a convention was founding a Southern Confederacy, electing political leaders, and formulating a new government. He was content, however, to leave such matters to those who were there. He considered his highest talents to be military, and he had the position he wanted, commander of Mississippi's army, with advancement to come along with glory when the issue swung to war. Then history beckoned again, assuming another of her guises. February 10, he and Mrs. Davis were out in the garden, cutting a rose bush in the early blue spring weather, when a messenger approached with a telegram in his hand. Davis read it. In that moment of painful silence, he seemed stricken. His face took on the look of calamity. Then he read the message to his wife. It was headed, Montgomery, Alabama, and dated the day before. Sir, we are directed to inform you that you are this day unanimously elected President of the Provisional Government of the Confederate States of America, and to request you to come to Montgomery immediately. We send also a special messenger. Do not wait for him. He spoke of it, Mrs. Davis said, as a man might speak of a sentence of death. Yet he wasted no time. He packed and left next day. End quote. After a roundabout five-day long train trip caused by the South's rickety, imperfect rail system, Davis finally arrived in Montgomery, now the Confederacy's first capital city, on February 16th. That night, in front of a cheering crowd, William Lowndes Yancey famously introduced Jefferson Davis by announcing, The man and the hour have met. And with that pronouncement, that seems like an excellent point to begin wrapping up this episode. We'll devote the next regular show to a biography of Jefferson Davis, and uh, so in that way we can bring his life story up to speed with where we are here on the podcast. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Look Away, A History of the Confederate States of America by William C. Davis. James I. Robertson, Jr., author of an excellent biography of Stonewall Jackson, had this to say about Look Away. Behind the mass of the Confederate armies was a government and home front far removed from the moonlight and magnolia traditions too often presented. 
Davis has produced a path-breaking work in every sense. Concentrating on political, social, and economic subjects, this book is so revealing that it will surely become a basic reference work in Civil War history. So that's Look Away by William C. Davis. As always, you can find each and every one of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Don't forget to look for the special bonus episode on Life in 1860 America, which we will release tomorrow. Before we sign off, we want to give a shout out to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use the song Midnight on the Water as the music at the beginning and end of every show. And then we want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.